This time on Difference Makers, the new director of the Savannah Music Festival, David Pratt, shares insights on growing up in Australia, developing a love for multiple music genres, and taking over a Savannah institution that's celebrating its 30th season with the festival's opening on March the 28th. The Difference Makers podcast is brought to you by an organization making a major difference in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. You know the organizations and businesses they lead. You might even know their faces. But do you know what makes them difference makers? This is Difference Makers, a podcast dedicated to highlighting Savannah's key players and their contributions to our community. Difference Makers hail from several sectors, including commerce, government, education, arts and culture, and philanthropy. I'm Adam Van Bremer, editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Thank you for listening. Savannah locals and visitors alike identify with Savannah in a variety of ways. The charm of our downtown, the fun of the annual St. Patrick's Day Parade, the giant container ships that plow our main waterway. Culturally speaking, people identify our city with the Savannah Music Festival. 2019 is a big year for the event. It marks the 30th anniversary and the first with new leadership. Our latest difference maker is that new frontman, David Pratt. executive director of the savannah music festival is with us we're about two weeks out from the festival and we're going to talk a lot about the festival coming up but let's start start with you i think when people start to hear you talk they're going to realize that you're not a savannian and you're not technically even an american but you grew up in australia you from talking to you earlier it sounds like you lived a lot of different places in australia can you kind of talk about your background and, and maybe what kind of shaped you as a young person to get to where you are today? Yeah, I, um, I tell people my life is a reflection of the things that I'm passionate about, which is probably, of course, the influence of your family. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I'm an Aussie. Um, I'd like to tell Southerners I'm more Southern than all of you because I'm from the Southern Hemisphere and so. I'm from the <laughs> Southern part of Australia, a country boy at heart, born in, a, in a, a gold mining town called Bendigo, which is in the middle of the state of Victoria, which is the southernmost mainland state. Of course, we can't uh, forget about poor Tasmania, which gets left out off the map from time to time um but it's only by because of a cartoon character unfortunately (laughs) exactly (laughs) um but uh yeah i mean my background's kind of interesting because i didn't really study anything specifically related to the work that i do although business of course is something i studied postgraduate but I, i grew up in a family that um was very academic um, and I think that probably influenced me. I think all of us, and I'm, uh, I have uh, two sisters, a twin sister and, and an older sister, we, we all have uh, undergraduate and postgraduate qualifications. So that had an influence. And my parents always encouraged us to go to university and, and do something that we're passionate about. Um, they thought that was really important. Um, and so they pushed us. Um, and I tell people I grew up in a family where I had a, a, a mom who was a, a teacher and a father who was, a, in his earlier days, a, a colonel in the army. So, you know, he had no chance in my family. You, you had to perform. Yeah, you <laughs> so, and focus. Oh, absolutely. Um, but, you know, my mother also um, encouraged me and all of us to play musical instruments. Like mm-hmm. a lot of kids growing up, it was at school. But I loved it. I played piano and clarinet and studied music all through school. 
I wasn't particularly good at it, though. I wasn't a particularly good musician, but it was a very cathartic thing, I think, to right. play you know, an instrument and to learn music, and I enjoyed the challenge of that. Um, and I made the conscious decision, I remember, not to study music uh, at university because I didn't think I was a very good musician, and I didn't want to be a music teacher. I had no interest in being a teacher mm-hmm. um, at all, which is interesting. My mother's a teacher, and my father is a good part of his career uh, used to teach MBA students at university so but that didn't interest me so I ended up studying uh, believe it or not outdoor recreation management because I've always loved the outdoors you know I, I, I love being outdoors I'm a um, prolific exerciser in the outdoors I grew up like a lot of Australians it's a warm climate you grow up by the beach um, and I loved it, you know. Um, I, I tell people I learned to swim, not in a swimming pool, I learned to swim in the ocean, actually. Um, that's where I had swimming lessons in salt water, um, and swimming's a big part of my life. So I did that, and then and I worked in that uh, sector for several years, and while I worked in that sector, I went back to university part-time and studied um, business administration at a postgraduate level, um, which was the influence and encouragement of my father that to have those kind of business skills is important, and I... I think that was probably true. Um, And again, like a lot of my life, right place, right time. I had been working uh, for an institution in Melbourne and I met a woman just by chance who was the head of Film Victoria, the big um, state film agency, which is a funding agency for film. And um, they had started uh, a film office for the state of Victoria, um, just started it, and um, a woman who had been running it for a short period of time left, and she said, would you be interested in coming to run this agency, but you have to find the funding, because there's no funding for it, and it's going to run out, um, and you'll be traveling um, internationally. And I thought, well, that tick boxes for me. I love, I've always loved film as well. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how my career shifted out of kind of outdoor recreation into kind of more cultural entertainment kind of um, roles. Although that role really was a business development role because what I was doing was bringing work into Australia and then outwardly um, promoting aspects of the film and television sector from the state. And in fact, Melbourne is where the film industry was born in Australia in 1996. So very strong um, uh, prolific uh, film and television sector in, in, in Melbourne and the state of Victoria. And that's how I first started coming to the United States for work, although I'd been here in my late 20s, uh, my early 20s after university and, and worked uh, for a year um, up in Oregon. And that's probably where my first real love affair with the United States started. Um, and I remember my first trip in that film agency job to Los Angeles. I think it was 1994. And I remember driving down the 10 freeway in Los Angeles and I said to myself, I'm going to be living and working in this city. I could just feel it. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? A couple of years later, that's exactly what happened. Again, right place, right time. A gentleman I knew uh, went back to Australia and I said, I want to come in and be the head of the film agency for Australia in Los Angeles. Right. And um, yeah. Let me ask you a little bit about the film industry in Australia. I think most people here in America the last 30 years, I mean, we know some of the Australian Actors and actresses, mm-hmm. you know, Nicole Kidman, yep. Hugh Jackman, exactly. uh, Mel Gibson. Yes. But we might not necessarily know the Australian films, the Australian uh-huh. television. Is yeah. it very, very similar to what we have here? What, how would you compare and contrast the industry over there? Well, the budgets there are a lot smaller because this, you know, the sector is, is it doesn't have the kind of money that, um, that, that you have here in the United States. So you, you, you'll see production values um, are different. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but, you know, there's been quintessential Australian films that, that have had, had such an impact. Um, I think of, when I was a kid, uh, films, uh, um, Peter Weir, you know, mm-hmm. phenomenal con- uh, um, director. Um, there was a film he directed in the early 70s um, called The Last Wave, which just blew my mind as a nine-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, Picnic and Hanging Rock, um, which uh, they remade into a television series a few years ago. Extraordinary piece of filmmaking. Um, I mean, Jack Thompson, of course, mm-hmm. a phenomenal Australian actor. Um, he was around a lot in um, in films in the 70s. The Storm Boy, such a wonderful film about a young boy and a, and a, and a bird in, in South Australia. Again, just been remade recently. But I think of other films over the years, um, uh, Brecker Morant, mm-hmm. um, Gallipoli, um, and then films like um, Muriel's Wedding mm-hmm. and Priscilla, yeah. Queen of the Desert. Mm-hmm. Did very well internationally, mm-hmm. um, but did a lot for the Australian film business um, over the years. And I think Australian television, um, you know, around drama and comedy. I mean, comedy is very different. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that's always struck me when I first came to the United States. The comedy aspect is definitely different um, to American comedy. But I think the drama is very similar. Um, and, they, and they do a pretty good job um, in creating television series that do really well. Um, so. so I have to ask you, when a lot of Americans of a certain age think of Australian in film, they think of... Crocodile Dundee, oh, yes. right? Yeah, of course, absolutely. <laughs> or, or even quickly down under. <laughs> yes, exactly. Some of these, down Hollywood, under, yes. these Hollywood yeah. portrayals of Australia. Yeah. It, 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 how how accurate are they? How did you guys take a lot of pride in that, or did you hide your eyes? Or what? oh no, I think Australians took a lot of pride in it. I mean, I th- I think they they laughed a lot, but I think you know those films did very well at the box office too in Australia. And um, look, Paul Hogan, when I was a kid in the seventies in a, in Sydney, he actually lived down the street from me, believe it or not. Is that right? Um, in Sydney. Um, you know, he was he had a, a weekly comedy series, and he was hilarious. Was so we right? all knew him. You know, and we used to run into him in the store. You know, yeah. down the street. You he didn't know, have that it? big knife with him, did he? No, he did not. Oh. So, um, I mean, obviously, it's it's an extreme version of of, oh, sure. of a character. But there are characters like that. When you go out into the Australian outback, it's mm. it's pretty wild. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are definitely individuals that that certainly look like him, talk right. like him, and behave like him. Right. So, yeah. yeah, there you go. Well, film obviously is is somewhat connected to music, but at the same time, maybe not really. How did you go from the film side to the music side? Well, I've been in Los Angeles for um, a number of years, and um, I've been running that film agency. And then while I was there, I saw an opportunity, and it was really based on BAFTA, which is the British Academy of Film and of the Arts. And I used to go to these BAFTA events on a fairly regular basis. And BAFTA is really about the cultural side of the film business. It's about you know um, uh, British film and British television and British work, British actors, directors, writers, um, and those things, and um, highlighting that and and um, and putting a focus on that. And I was asked almost every week by executives and people in the in the film business in Los Angeles about the up-and-coming actors out of Australia, you know, writers, what's hot, anything new. So I decided to create 
an agency like BAFTA, mm -hmm. and we call it. Well, we first called it the Los Angeles Australian Film and Television Association. We launched it in 2001 uh, with um, Baz Luhrmann with uh, Moulin Rouge, and mm -hmm. we had his permission, and, and uh, Fox also gave us permission to launch this, this uh, organization. And then about a year in. Um, one of the big Australian directors, and I think of his name in a minute, uh, came to me and said, I think we should change the name. And I said, what should we change it to? And he said, Australians in film. Mm -hmm. So we did. Mm -hmm. um, and that agency was about showcasing all this work out of Australia um, and also the work that Australians were doing on American films. So we'd, we'd screen films and have Q&As. It was a membership-based organization. So, and that organization has grown um, gangbusters. It's now almost 19 years old. I ran it for the first five years, so very proud of that. But I think I was a little burnt out mm -hmm. after doing that and really essentially running two organizations for several years. And I thought, I just need a break. Mm -hmm. So um, like a lot of Australians, we like to take some long breaks. I went... Uh, and moved to Spain and lived in Barcelona for a while and I was thinking about my next move and I was going to come back to the US but I had a really bad water skiing accident um, in the Mediterranean just south of Barcelona pretty, ser pretty serious actually and came back to Australia for some surgery and had to lie, lie around for a number of months to let my leg heal did a lot of damage to my left, my left leg and of course when I got up and about I suddenly got all these job offers, but it was doing exactly what I've been same doing. Same and I'm not interested. I just wasn't, I'm not one of those people that can do the same thing for years. I just can't. Mm -hmm. It's just not in my DNA. So I started thinking about what I could do and music was coming up for me. Right place, right time. It was offered to uh, a job, a temporary job for two months to run some events around the visit of the Vienna Philharmonic who were coming to the Sydney, the Sydney Opera House. So I went up there and did that. Met another person and um, they said they couldn't find a general manager for the Australian Festival of Chamber Music, which had got into some trouble financially, been around for about 16 years. And up in the tropics, very northern part of Australia, a place called Townsville. So I made the bold move to decide to move up there and do that for a couple of years and course corrected the organization, got it back in, sh in, uh, in shape financially and set it in the right direction. But it was time for me to come back to the United States. Um, I have an American partner, so it was important to me as well mm. after being away for a number of years and came back to Los Angeles and did some contract work. It was pretty easy for me to get with contacts there. But I really wanted to go and run an orchestra because I'd also spent some time with the Sydney Symphony in a senior position as well. And that's where Savannah came in. I thought, well, I'm a, I'm a realist. I'm not going to get a job landing, running the Los Angeles Philharmonic when no one really knows me in that sector here in the United States. So I thought I was just applying for small orchestras in, in different communities. I didn't want to live somewhere where I had to shovel snow because I'm an Aussie and I like the warm weather. Yeah. And I don't want to live in the middle of the country because I can't be too far away from the water because mm -hmm. I love the beach in summer. And uh, I remember I came out here in July of 2010. I applied for this job at the, the Savannah Philharmonic. I'd read the history online. I knew exactly what had happened here. But I just fell in love with the city immediately. And Peter Shannon and I just hit it off. Mm -hmm. When we met, and I didn't mind the heat and humidity because I'd dealt with that in Australia and, and um, certain places I've lived. But there was something about the city and the people that really interested me. Mm -hmm. And so I said yes and came out here, you know, shortly after that to 
really get that organization up and running. It had been around for less than a year, and it didn't have any money, mm-hmm. but Peter had made an impact, it was clear. Mm-hmm. And it had the elements because you had uh, um, a young, charismatic conductor, a community that clearly loved classical yeah, music. They missed classical yes. music for yes. almost a decade. Yeah, and it just had the right elements, mm-hmm. you know, that I knew just intuitively from my work and experience that it would be a good a good a good fit although my southern california sense were like are you crazy mm-hmm. i'm like well you clearly don't know me because i'm a risk taker and i like to move around and i will be honest with you the first year was tough mm-hmm. it was really tough it was not easy because a lot of people you know were still pretty angry about what happened in 2003 right with the old this yeah, yeah yeah um so and i remember conversations with the community leaders in this community conversations with major donors um and i said to them i guarantee you that the one thing i will do is this organization will be in good fiscal shape mm-hmm. um i do not run deficits ever and i never have my entire working life i've never run an operating deficit in any year so that was the most important thing to the community because of what had happened here um and it was about halfway through the second year it just took off right it was just boom i I knew that that this organization was going to be successful Mm -hmm. if we managed it properly Mm -hmm. um and peter and i and the board and a lot of you know phenomenal individuals got behind us we were we were fortunate we got a lot of people behind us in in a short period of time and um, I'm proud that that organization is still here 10 years later. That's right. It's, it's, it's testament to the, the foundations that we laid as, a, as, a, as an organization and a community. So, and it's probably um, why as they go through their own transition right now, yes. that they are positioned for the future. Yes, to yes. Survive, to survive what will and be. Transitions transition. of any type, whether it's personal or professional organization, aren't easy. But I moved on and people say, why did you leave? Because I said, because that's who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's, that, that's something that I, I have conversations myself about that, you know. You know, I've done a lot of short, you know, three years, two years, four years. But I think when I look back at my work experience, it's been about coming in and, and either course correcting organizations or um, starting from scratch. But I feel like I, oh, my job's done. It's time to move on. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did in Santa Barbara. When okay. I moved to Santa Barbara, um, great institution, 65 years, phenomenal conductor, a, a, still a great friend, adore him. Um, and a different kind of community to, to Savannah. Um, but they had had some, um, some financial issues. Mm-hmm. So... That was definitely a course correction and, and adding some new programs and, 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 and getting more involved in the community. And a community um, where there is there are dollars available. Yes, there are dollars available. <laughs> but the one thing I will say about Santa Barbara, people don't realize that it has per capita than the most nonprofits in the entire country in one community, in dollars. a city of 100,000 people. And whilst there's a lot of money in that community, it's competitive. Yeah. You still have to work really hard <laughs> because you're competing with so many different nonprofits. Um, and then out of the blue, I just, again, out of the blue, it was a job offer or it was a headhunter that called me and said, would I be interested in coming back to Australia to run the Queensland Symphony Orchestra to work with this young conductor, um, Alonso de la Parra? And my mom had not been well. And it had been on my mind, I've been away so long, part of it's like guilty, I'm the only son. So I thought, you know, 
And I thought at some stage I might go back for a while, and, but I, it wasn't really on my radar. Mm. And I thought, well, we'll just see how this goes. You know, I thought this is going to be a very competitive role, but they offered it to me. And I thought it was an opportunity to work with, with this a female conductor from Mexico City. Mm. What are you doing in Australia of all yeah. places? There's very few Mexicans in Australia. Mm. Um, and to run a much bigger institution um, – and and then be closer to my family and to my mom who um you know had some issues over the years so um and i said i'll sign i'll sign a two-year contract and that's what i did um and you know it had its challenges definitely you're working with an institution that um has so many staff i mean we had 110 full-time staff which 80 of those are musicians um but you know, I enjoyed it immensely. I learned a lot about myself. Um, like anything that you do, you hope to learn something. Um, I loved working with Alondra. Um, she brought something so different to the orchestra and so different to Australia because of her cultural influences. Um, it was the first female conductor of any orchestra in Australia. Um, right? And she, you know, Alondra is un- under 40. Um, I think she was 36 or 35 when she accepted the role. And she brought all these influences from Latin America and South America, you know, conductors and musicians. And I loved it on a personal level because of my time in the United States and the influence of, of, of Mexico and Latin America and certainly on the West Coast too, particularly here. Um, but uh, again, American partner, separated for a couple of years mm-hmm. and um, got a call and said, you know, would, would I move back to Georgia? And I said, well, I have to tell the institution soon because my contract's up. Mm-hmm. And that was a plan. I was going to move back to Georgia, uh, maybe sometime in 2019. I wasn't in a hurry. I love to travel, typical Aussie, take some time off. Mm-hmm. And I've done that different times in my life. I've taken chunks of time off just to travel because I really enjoy it. Um, and I got a call one day and said, you know, Rob Gibson's resigned. Um, he's leaving. Would you be interested? And I went, wow, the music festival. That's a great institution. And I really generally like Savannah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of how the conversation started with, with the board chair and, and the board. And ultimately, of course, I said yes and um, moved back at the end of October. So I'm about four months in. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been a whirlwind, I'm sure, since you... Well, yeah, when you jump into in something where you're essentially five months out from you know, a festival like this in, a, in, a, in an anniversary year, you have a lot of work to do in a very short period of time. So... Yeah. But I think what helped knowing this, the community, uh, knowing not all, but a good chunk of the players, knowing some of the team over there helped because I think if you didn't know, your learning curve would be even steeper. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, let's pick up on that transition. And obviously, the, the music festival has been around for, for 30 years. Mm-hmm. You, you were familiar with it. It was, uh, it's in a time of transition. But as you alluded to earlier, a lot of the other jobs you've gone into, there's been a lot of. Uh, I don't want to call you a fixer, but but somebody who had to come in and and really make some major changes. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily the, the 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 case here. How did the transition? How has the transition gone? Yeah, and you're right. I mean, this is an institution that that, that didn't have those issues, and some of the and it's not a new institution. Um, I think I think where the festival was really fortunate is they've had. Um, essentially a staff base that have been there a number of years. I mean, Ryan McMakin's been there, I think, 12 years. Um, Aaron Tatum's been there four or five years. Um, so you've got a lot of institutional knowledge, mm-hmm. um, and that helps. Um, 
because when that goes, it takes a long time to get that institutional knowledge. So I think that helped the transition. And the transitions are never easy, I believe, mm-hmm. for any institution when there's been such a change of a leader such as Rob Gibson mm-hmm. um, because it's, it's un- unknown what's going to happen. Um, but I think overall, because of those individuals who've been there a long time, the transition was, was, really, was really smooth. And you remember that most of the programming had already been done mm-hmm. between Rob and Ryan. Mm-hmm. And that's the most important thing is the program set, right. you know, for, and I'm asking those questions, how far along are you in the programming? Mm-hmm. Um, critical. And that, I think most of it had been done by the time Rob departed. Mm-hmm. So that helped, um, I think, in the transition. Um, and then for me, transition's about communicating with stakeholders to ensuring your stakeholders, what's going on, you know, what are the changes, because people um, can feel a little uneasy when there's big, big change. It can make people nervous, and it's our jobs, board, very important, board, the, board, um, the board chairman, the board and the leaders of the organization that they communicate as much as they can open, openly and honestly with their stakeholders about what's going on. So, And when I jumped in, I spent the first month meeting with all our stakeholders yeah. and board members to make sure um, they knew what was going on, what my role was, because when you, you know, this is a big change and people mm-hmm. are a little confused about, well, what's Ryan's role? Mm-hmm. What's your role? Well, I'm clear about it because I've spent my life working with artistic directors and music directors, so I know exactly what my role is. So that was important to communicate that to the community about what Ryan's role is, what my role is um, in the institution yeah. moving forward. That's interesting because f- for those that aren't familiar, Rob Gibson was both the executive director and artistic director ryan threw in underneath him of course yes. daniel hope played a big role yes. uh, in terms of artistic directing on the classical side you are more of an operations guy yeah and, i'm a business person right. i mean i'm a business person with a good knowledge of the artistic elements and i think i think anyone in a role like mine you know and to sum it up my job's to ensure that the institution um is in good financial shape that's essentially it, and that we have the resources to put on the program every year, or the resources to deliver the programs that we're delivering every year. That's essentially what I do, in a very simplistic way. Um, and you know, it's 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 critical. Um, and uh, it, the the model of having one individual as artistic and um, executive is actually not the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, in some institutions that can work, it obviously worked here for many years, um, but the general uh, model, uh, this is probably why the board decided to go that way, is just to separate the roles and have an executive director and an artistic director. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's a little bit different at the moment probably is that Ryan's probably playing more time in marketing mm-hmm. um, right. than generally would because of just the change. Yeah. And that was where he was before. <laughs> yes, yeah. and I had to jump into some areas of the organization that I just spent a lot of my time in, mm-hmm. particularly in development. Mm-hmm. Um, and so eventually I will take on some more of that, particularly the, the data-driven side of marketing. Right. Um, but the creative side of marketing, he will retain. And that's important right. because even my roles, uh, previous roles where I've had you know, marketing as, as part of my uh, remit, anything that's related to artistic, the artistic side of marketing, I've always run by my artistic director for approval. Right. So, right. yeah. The artistic director ultimately is probably the person who's responsible for, for the 
the ID, the uh, how people identify with the festival. Yes, from talking to you yeah. earlier, that may evolve, but it's it's not changing mm-hmm. here, correct? No, not at all. And you're right. I mean, to me, you know, the, the artistic director um, or the music director, whatever it is, in any institution is to me the number one role um, because they're the person um, that creates the art. You know that that puts the program together. It's their artistic vision. Mm-hmm. You know our our roles as business people um, is to support the artistic vision of the organization. Um, and to me, that's the number one individual in the organization. Always um, supported one hundred percent by their executive director or their CEO, whatever the, whatever the title is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that has that doesn't hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing that's that's critical to me that I will always speak up about um, in these roles, and it's certainly something that I've communicated to Ryan mm-hmm. and, and to the board, is what does this institution stand for? What does the brand stand for? And you know, it's the artistic integrity um, that is so critical to the success of this festival that can never change. Yeah. You know, that vision that was created, you know, in the early days, probably by um, Seminar on Stage, but certainly by Rob Gibson, is so critical to our success. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will fight for that 100%. One last piece of transition, of course, is we got the news earlier this week, or actually it'd be earlier last week. Was it um, Daniel Hope is, has decided to mm-hmm. move on? This will yep. be his, his last year. And I know you guys have already lined up somebody that's going to at least kind of assume his role in, in the short term. What does Daniel's move mean and uh, what has he meant to this, to this organization? Well, he's, he's been such a, a force and an integral part, I think, of the festival's success, particularly in driving the classical programming um, component of the festival. Um, a, lot, a lot of the, not all the elements of classical programming, but certainly a good chunk of it. And the individuals that he's brought um, that have, have come back year after year. Um, and, you know, we're incredibly grateful to him and, and those other individuals to to what they've brought to this festival um, and that part of our programming is 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 critical um, and you know, that doesn't change and moving forward the classical side of our programming which is predominantly chamber music and some recitals obviously we have this relationship with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra which has been around for a long time um, that's not going to change what will change eventually probably um, you know like anything programming year after year you want different um, repertoire um, and at some stage, I'm sure there will be um, some different musicians that come along. But we've worked very closely with Daniel uh, since he made this announcement um, in the transition period. And um, what we came up with, and this has mainly been driven by Ryan and Daniel working together, of course, um, keeping me informed, is Philip Dukes, who's been one of the... Um, performers who've come back year after year as part of Daniel Hope and Friends. He's a violist um, from the UK um, who's also an incredible programmer um, that he would step in as an artistic advisor for 2020 to provide some um, consistency mm-hmm. uh, from 2019 to 2020 mm-hmm. um, and that's been communicated uh, with um, the other musicians that are part of that group um, such as the Kim brothers and Carla Maria Rodriguez and others, um, Sebastian Canal. Um, um, so 
that stays intact. Um, what we can't answer yet is 2021 and beyond. But what I can tell you, certainly the vision of having a um, associate artistic director like um, Daniel will continue post 2020. Um, it's an important part of the festival. Um, and we'll work through that over the next um, 12 to 18 months to decide you know, who that may be. We'll get into our deep dive here in a moment, but first let's talk about the Savannah Economic Development Authority. When it comes to difference makers in Savannah, the team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and to live. CETA is committed to creating, growing, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah region. Whether a business looking to relocate to the Savannah region or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is like the centrifuge of a propeller making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. Let's talk real quick about this year's festival. And I know that uh, we got a first with a collaboration with the Savannah Philharmonic. Yep. I know we were talking earlier about some of the artists on the list, and it's a it's almost a who's who. Can you kind of give us yeah. a preview? Well, it's, you know, it's so eclectic. And I, I just want to make the statement first, and this is a, an observation as an outsider coming into the, into the institution, and it's really because I've done all these presentations in the last few months around uh, the Lowcountry and, and Savannah, is the standard and that the majority of these artists are Grammy award-winning or Grammy-nominated artists, which is pretty extraordinary that we get to hear these musicians here in Savannah every year. And the programming is so eclectic. I think that's what I like about it. But some highlights, I, I think, you know, from my perspective, and I do want to talk about this collaboration because this is a first and it's a collaboration uh, with the Savannah Philharmonic. Um, but it involves, you know, a, a, another artistic individual, Marcus Roberts, who's mm-hmm. one of our associate artistic directors who's driven our, our Swing Central Jazz um, program and programming in, for many years. And um, he, is, of course, is an incredible artist in his own right and um, composer, composed a Rhapsody in D uh, for uh, his sextet and orchestra. So that's the main highlight of that particular program but also along with Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue which is you know quintessential mm-hmm. uh, so well known and then you know the second half of the concert finishing with what I call you know standard symphonic repertoire the Firebird Suite Stravinsky's Firebird Suite which is incredible so I think that will be an extraordinary concert and um, just from a personal level um, it's it's very meaningful for me to in my first year with the music festival that there's a program with you know, another institution that um, essentially I was yeah, an important part of, yeah. um, and that's great. Um, but beyond that, you know, um, Daniel Hope, of course, uh, this is his his last programming year, mm-hmm. um, so it's an important year. It's a celebratory year for him and um, what he brings to the festival. Um, I'm particularly excited about the. Uh, program with the Chamber Music Society, the Lincoln Center. I mean, that's one of those institutions around the world that has such a significant um, reputation in in chamber chamber music. And the program with him and people like Wuhan and David Finkel is just going to be extraordinary. Um, um, playing Dvorak and uh, uh, Brahms program, which just makes me really happy. <laughs> My own background in chamber <laughs> music, um, but you know. 
great p- pianist, Yuho mm-hmm. uh, Pahonen, who's an incredible Finnish pianist. Uh, Sebastian Canal returns. Lars Vogt, another German um, pianist. The standard of these musicians is extraordinary. And I was telling someone the other day, these kinds of musicians in the classical world, they travel the world and they are soloists, you know, with um, uh, orchestras, they play recitals and they play chamber music and the standard is just world class. Yeah. And we're so fortunate to have that. Yeah. But then you get to something like some of the world music that, that, that excites me. Um, something that grabbed me immediately when I was first looking at the program back in Australia before um, I moved out here is this program with Angelique Kijo, who's an Afro-pop artist from West Africa. She's been at the festival before in 2008. Um, She has reimagined the songs of uh, Talking Heads, Mm. Remain in the Light. Now, Talking Heads is a band in the late 70s and 80s that, you know, was huge when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. I love their music. And I've listened to some of these tracks, and I'm so excited about that. And I didn't really realize that until I started researching this, the influence of a kind of um, African pop music on Talking Heads. And so um, it's kind of a nice fit. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, I've traveled to Cuba a few times over the years, going back to the late 90s. And um, I look at some of the Cuban music that's on uh, this program uh, in 19. Daymare Asina, who's a Cuban powerhouse, um, is performing, and then there's a group from uh, Santiago de Cuba, El Teto. I'm not great with my Spanish pronunciation, oh, right. um, performing um, Son, which is a region of music, Cuban music from that region, it's the eastern part of Cuba. They're here later on in the festival, um, excited about that. And then you think about um, uh, people like uh, Daphnis Prito, um, who just won uh, Best Latin Jazz Album at the Grammys, is right. going to be here with Latin Jazz, an extraordinary artist originally from Cuba but uh, has lived in the United States for a long time. Um, we're so fortunate to have that kind of music. There's another jazz trio um, that's really well known on the, east, on the West Coast from Seattle, uh, the Devon Lamar organ trio, uh, who are going to be here. Um, kind of real funky contemporary jazz mm-hmm. um, playing the B3 organ I'm, I'm, I saw them in New York in January I just this is going to be such a fun program um, and then there's some powerhouses in the jazz I mean think about um, Pat Metheny you know mm-hmm. he has such a reputation mm-hmm. as a jazz guitarist um, that he's going to be here and you know people in the community are excited about that um, and on the bluegrass side, people like Ricky Skaggs, the Del McCurry Band. I mean, these are extraordinary artists. Right. Um, and that mix of that music, of course, the Atlanta Symphony returns, mm-hmm. um, which is a 14-year relationship. Mm-hmm. And they're playing a fantastic program too, the Beethoven Triple Concerto. And it's one of those uh, pieces of music you don't hear that often, but um, it's pretty extraordinary. In fact, it's the only concerto that Beethoven wrote for more than one um, instrument. Um, and that will be Daniel Hope and uh, David Finkel and Wuhan. So, um, and that's the first opening weekend. And then you look at even the closing uh, weekend with Messio Parker, who's just a legend, you know, mm-hmm. um, playing a funky jazz music. Um, so I think the festival lives up to its reputation in its right. 30th anniversary year. Right. So. And that's another great thing about Savannah Music Festival is most of these acts you're seeing in intimate venues mm-hmm. but with that comes the fact that 
tickets can be hard to come by. So if people want to get tickets here between now and March the 28th, they go to... Savannah Box Office. Okay. Um, do not wait. And in fact, some of our shows have uh, sent us out already. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you wait for the last minute, you might be disappointed. Um, so yeah, if you're, if you're uh, into music, I suggest that you um, jump online mm-hmm. uh, and check out the program and, uh, and uh, purchase now and purchase don't wait now. for the last minute. Yeah. Good advice. Good advice. So you mentioned that this is the 30th anniversary year, mm-hmm. and of course the Savannah Music Festival dates back to Savannah on stage, and, mm-hmm. and we call it a music festival, that's the name of it, but it really is almost an institution in this town, right? What What is your sense of what this festival means, what has it done for Savannah? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I had this conversation with someone not long after I got back about what well, sister festival and i said actually yes it is but it's so much more than that and it's absolutely a cultural institution when you look at what's happened in the last 30 years it, you know it started as, as savannah on stage and um they had great vision uh, uh for for creating a performing arts festival in this community and game changer definitely with rob gibson being hired in 2002 and coming down from the jazz at lincoln center rob is such a passionate person and knows so much about music and his vision for this festival uh, was extraordinary and he basically um, created something that I think everyone in Savannah and across this country can be proud of um, because you look at um, the facts and you look about just just from an economic perspective in 2018 um, its economic impact was just under 12 million which is a million in tax revenues, you know, uh, over 9,000 room nights, uh, 43% of the um, 34,000 people who attend uh, came from outside the community. They come here, they're you know, purchasing hotels and spending money and, and coming to the festival and, and experiencing this incredible uh, community. It's putting Savannah on the map as a cultural destination too, um, although it's already pretty well known but i think what this festival does uh, around uh, people who love music and culture is that you can come to savannah and see these extraordinary artists from all over the world um you don't have to do it in atlanta or new york or or los angeles or san francisco um and uh that's an incredible uh legacy uh for this community um definitely when you were a newcomer to savannah and you first learned about this festival what were your well, I told you that story, and I remember this clearly. Um, I came in the summer of 2010, so it was the fall of 2010 for the 2011 festival. Picked up this brochure, and I just was just dumbfounded when I was looking at these artists and thinking, these are artists that I see at the Hollywood Bowl, mm-hmm. at the Greek, at quintessential big you know, a Los Angeles music venues that are coming to Savannah, Georgia. And I just worked with Diane Reeves the year before um, in Sydney with the Sydney Symphony. I couldn't believe that she was on the bill. Um, Pink Martini, who I'd seen multiple times at the Hollywood Bowl, um, the Avett brothers, um, mm-hmm. yep. just extraordinary. I, I just couldn't believe it. And I said, this is, this is, this is a big deal. That was my first reaction. This is really a big deal. And, of course, every year I couldn't wait to open up the festival brochure to see who was coming um, for my, my, my own personal um, taste. So 
but I think that's a reflection really of what this festival uh, has created um, it is a it is a festival that brings in the best artists across those genres from um, across the US and from around the world mm-hmm. and how fortunate we all are to have that in this community mm-hmm. and that's really um, you know the essence of what this brand stands for but mm-hmm. beyond that too I think the festival's done a good job in in um, rooting itself in the community mm-hmm. um, absolutely particularly in the education side, uh, the work that Jenny Woodruff, who's our Director of Education, has done uh, with the Music Explorers program. It's pretty extraordinary. Uh, I think it's about four or five years old now. It's in five counties and 56 schools, um, reaches 11,000 school kids, and this is curriculum that's in the schools every single week. Teach them about music and culture and music from around the world. So all genres of music, they pick three genres each semester. That's a pretty extraordinary program. And then the in-festival um, um, programs around education with the Acoustic Music Seminar and uh, Swing Central Jazz are unique programs. Mm-hmm. And um, they're, they're well thought out. And, um, you know, they're not something on the side. They're integral to who we are. And that's important. Um, in terms of giving something back to the community as well. And music education is something I'm passionate about because um, across the public schools uh, here in the U.S. and even in Australia, you know, you're seeing less and less um, of music. Music's important to, um, to learning. Mm-hmm. It's important to all sorts of things. There have been lots of studies on this. So we have a role to, uh, to play in that. I think all performing arts institutions have a role to play in music education and community engagement. Mm-hmm. Let's wrap up with this question. You've been focused on the present since mm-hmm. probably the moment you got into town or even before that. Yes. You've got to put this thing on mm-hmm. in the end of this month and you've had to deal with some transition and getting to know everybody again. Yeah. And I don't know that you've had much of a chance to kind of to reflect forward. I don't know if that's the proper way to put that, but look to the future. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the future? I know last year we had the the outdoor the 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 thing at the at the Morris Center with the outdoor amphitheater and I know that's not coming back this year, but it doesn't mean that it's not coming back in in the future. What are some of the future initiatives that maybe you've got cooking around in your mind right now? Yeah, and look, certainly Ron and I are talking about that. Um, we're already programming 2020, but as an institution, the, the first thing for me is to ensure that the festival uh, remains intact in terms of what it stands for, which is that brand experience I was talking about. And that's not going to change. And across those, f- those four genres, because I think that that's what makes us unique compared to any other music festival in the country, because there's a lot of music festivals, let's face it. Um, but you know, when we look at the future, we look about how we ensure uh, that the 17-day festival can continue to grow. And that's always about ensuring we get the best artists across those genres um, and that programming each year is not the same thing year after year, mm-hmm. um, that you're bringing in some new, new and unique experiences for Savannians, but also to the people that come into the community. And that's important mm-hmm. because we want to continue to attract um, people from um, outside of the region um, to the city um, as well. But the thing we're talking about, too, is what can we do outside of that 17-day festival? Um, I think you will see um, a version down the track of the festival finale that happened in 2018 in the Trustees Garden, the big outdoor event, into the future. Um, It's got to be driven by 
the right headline acts. You know, sure. as I said to you earlier, you know, old saying from the film business, content is king. It's always driven by the programming. So it's the stars have to align to some degree, finding the venue when it's available and when we can get the people at the right price. Um, and the right weekend here. And the right weekend here. Um, but always we're, difficult. We're certainly going to look at some of that out of our course into festival programming um, in, in the future and the other thing that we're going to definitely um, uh, explore and expand is in the space of community engagement and education we have some really interesting ideas around creating some um, music education experiences for young people in this community on a weekly basis in Savannah mm-hmm. I can't say too much yet but um, it's definitely in the Good works teaser. And as well as things like, like for example, uh, this year we've done this uh, family jam. We've taken the Music Ex- Musical Explorers program but put it on as a day festival for families. So as far as the community engagement side, that's something that we're committed to as well into the future. Yeah. Well, great conversation. I know that as we sit here, St. Patrick's Day is looming and that's kind of captivating all our minds. But now I'm really excited for what happens 10, 11 days later. And I thank you for coming in and sharing with us and Best of luck to you this year. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Let me thank our guest, Savannah Music Festival Director David Pratt. Also our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority, a difference-making group in our community. Listen to new and archived episodes of Difference Makers wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and Spotify. If you listen through iTunes, please rate us or leave us a review. You've been listening to the Difference Makers podcast, a production of the Savannah Morning News and savannahnow.com.